Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Adam and I are so excited to present The Professor Is In meets the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, we are really excited for you all to hear our episode with Dr. Karen Kelsky and Kel Weinhold. We actually also discuss a previous guest of ours, Dr. Halana Darwin. So we've included the links to Dr. Darwin's hashtag MeTooPhD series in two parts. So go to our episode blurb in the show notes and you will find Dr. Darwin's um, episodes listed there. So today we're going to talk all things academia in terms of ending the gaslighting, um, ending feeling insecure in academia, and just really needing social support, academic support, communities that really uplift you. So I'm really excited for this. And before we get to it and you hear our theme song, which means the interview is coming, um, we are really excited here to offer our first ever Ivory Tower Boiler Room Book Club. It is on September 25th, uh, next Saturday. From five to seven, we are reading Possession by A.S. Byatt. So we're joking that you're coming to our book club seance. Don't get too scared. It's not Halloween yet, but go to our website um, and we have a book club section on our website and you'll see how to RSVP. And then in October, on October 3rd, we have another thriller of a book. We have PJ Vernon's Bathhouse and Mary and I are actually interviewing him next week. So we would love if any of you out there who are joining us for the Bathhouse Book Club if you want to ask PJ Vernon a question, we're going to have a section at the end for all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room subscribers. So how can you subscribe? Well, first, share our podcast, like it, leave a review, and then go to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and click our donate button. And you could be a one-time uh, subscriber for a donation or a monthly subscriber. But as long as you donate to Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you are able to ask PJ Vernon any question you would like. Well, within a certain parameter. <laughs> so you'll see how to do that in our book club section. Um, it, all it takes is just emailing us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. So Kel Weinhold recorded an aside that we really wanted to feature, which is her discussion about quoting Black feminist work when she gives her analysis of the Netflix show, The Chair. So thanks to Dr. Shonda Prescott-Weinstein. That is who Kel Weinhold's got her idea from. And we've also linked to Dr. Shonda Prescott-Weinstein's work in the episode blurb. And also I do wanna note that when I was recording this, the English department at Stony Brook didn't yet have a town hall. That actually has changed, which I'm so grateful for. We did have a Zoom town hall with our graduate director and our chair of the department. So it really did open up transparency in the department, especially for grad students feeling heard, having their concerns voiced. And in my opinion, knowing that public humanities and public scholarship are welcome in our training. I'm cheering right now. So <laughs> on that note, here is our theme song, Loverman, and we really hope you all enjoy this episode.
Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This has been a interview in the making. I know Adam and I have come to the professor's inn in different ways, but I still remember when I first came to Stony Brook University and the first text that was recommended to me was actually the professor's inn in 2014. So I feel like I'm finally meeting the guru idol that I had grown up with through my graduate school experience. So that being said, I'm joined by Adam Katz, my fellow co-host. Hi, Adam. Hi, everyone. And we are here actually with the professors in team, which is quite exciting with Dr. Karen Kowski, who is an academic consultant, career coach, writer, speaker, founder and CEO of the professors in and uh, her wife, Kel Weinhold, who is also part of the professors in and is a product productivity coach. Um, so I know we're gonna unpack a lot of what you both do with the professor is in, um, but welcome first. Thank you. Thank Let's you for having welcome. us. Let's do our first unpacking and um, we are not married. We, are, uh, we have an ongoing uh, 20 year conversation about the institution of marriage and its heteronormativity and property uh, um, oh, good. Relations. relations. And so uh, 20 year partnership, not married. Mm -hmm. So not wife. Okay, 20 year partnership. I'm glad you clarified that. No, um, I'm happy to discuss that with anybody because I've been making the argument for 20 years, much to my lovely partner's uh, discontent. Um, early, early. <laughs> earlier, no, like, whatever, don't start that again. So, anyway. Well, and I know even before we had our whole structured conversation about digging right into the crises of academia, Adam had gotten really excited to talk with Kel about the chair. So Adam, mm -hmm. you can ask that question that you've been waiting for about the chair. No, I'm just, um, let, let's just, let's just rehash some of, I, I'm, I'm only on, I started watching it. I'm on episode three or so. And I found that I have to parcel it out because like you were saying earlier, I just get, I just get too heated. It's too, there, there are some issues with it. There are no adjunct professors, obviously, in the show, which is an astonishing lacuna. But there are just things about it that are that capture the frustration too well. Yeah. So I feel like it, it's 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 like um, it's like any other kind of trauma. Like I feel like other people should watch it to at least get a sense. But I'm not sure I. Can. Yeah. I was talking to a, I was talking to somebody that I work with the other day, and she said she watched it. Um, that I was talking to a group of, of five different people in one of the productivity groups I work with, and, and I had watched it, and one other person had watched it, and the three people had been nowhere near it, um, and were like, "I'm not watching that." And the person who had watched it said, "You know, you got to sort of binge it, and then you have to go back and you have to show your partner the moments that you experienced." Like, so she was, she was back showing her husband. Now this part right here, this is what happens, and this is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think, for, I think for everybody in the academy, well, I never should say everyone, that that for so many people, there are moments in there that are so accurate as to be absolutely excruciating. Yeah. just the whole the all the dynamics mm -hmm. were just mm -hmm. at play and 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 i know that there's been overwhelmingly positive response to it and i think there's been a conversation that i've been following and that i was trying centering when we were talking earlier about the the, the treatment of black women 
within the script. So there's the there's the treatment of, of Yaz in the show, but there's also Yaz who never gets fully developed as a character, but we get to see all the other characters. Mm -hmm. um, there mm -hmm. is her sort of constant sacrifice, which I think is accurate. Um, but without the accompanying interiority right. about what motivated her decision. Right, so there's no conversation. We don't get to hear from her about that navigating that where we get to hear from the other characters mm -hmm. sort of even we get to hear get the old white guy in bed talking about you know how his wife didn't get tenure and what he should have done and mm -hmm. it's like right dude i well and that's just partly me at this point like i don't need to hear from any more yeah. old white guys mm -hmm. yeah. and it's hi everybody just a quick aside here from cal i wanted to cite chanda prescott weinstein as the source of my thinking around black women and the chair. It was certainly not my original thinking and it was for, informed by her work. She is the author of Disordered Cosmos. Great book. You should check it out and cite black women. So heteronormative too. Like and oh I I was mm -hmm. thinking, wait, where's the queer sexuality or where's mm -hmm. in a in an English department. In an English department. And where's where are the Latinx scholars? Mm -hmm. They're not. So even in uh, Pembroke, you know, a tiny little place, yeah. I would think that that even with tokenism, you would have like, oh, now we have, you know, mm -hmm. somebody doing Latin America. We have mm -hmm. this. So it, there, like I said, I think we have to continue to have a really complicated conversation about representation at the same time going, oh, my God, that is so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, you know, I was a department head and um, and I took over from an old white guy. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it, so it was, um, I mean, obviously I'm not a woman of color. And so, you know, the dynamics were different, but uh, so many of the dynamics were I, just identical. And it was being caught in that thing because the Dean was breathing down my neck. Not so much like there's a list, we're gonna let people go, but um, make a case for why what you do matters mm -hmm. in dollars and cents terms right. and get butts in seats and increase right. enrollments. And, so, and, and right that on. was, I mean, that was back in, um, when was I had 2000? 2003 uh, or four. Four yeah. for, for a five year term. And, you know, at Illinois, and it was already, I mean, we, it was already an urgent, like you have to do it. You have to increase enrollments. And, and I watched a, um, um, an interview with Sandra Oh with a woman who was a department chair, the first Asian woman department chair. Oh, wow. And Sandra Oh made the, the, reiterated the comment from the show, which is like, I got handed a bomb that was ready to explode and they wanted it to be in the hands of a woman. And I feel yes. like, oh, with, yeah. If you look at oh. your experience where they were just about to combine all of the oh, schools yeah. into a school of language. Yeah, yeah. Thanks I mean, for reminding me. So I took over from the guy. And immediately the guy and all previous guys, and it had all been guys, they had all had a dedicated full-time secretary. When I took over, I, that was removed and I had to share my secretary with two other departments. So I had a third of an, of a sec, of an administrative assistant and our entire budgetary system. And we got merged basically with French and German. And so the minute that it, and East Asian languages and cultures, by the way, Japanese, Chinese, Korean. So, because yeah. um, it goes with nobody speaks those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. can I just say, we were we were going straight up. I mean, Japanese had already gone way up. Chinese was going way up. Korean was strong, 
and French and German were collapsing. And our budget was like a third of the budget of these tiny, tiny and diminishing French and German departments mm. because of course of Orientalism and, and I mean, racism mm -hmm. and so on. So yeah. I, it, was, it was unreal. And I was constantly in the Dean's office advocating for more money. It was all about money, which yeah. is honestly just maybe a segue to why you're actually having us on the show, not so much to talk about the chair, but um, the, the, being a chair of the department um, and it was all budgets, that's all I did. If anyone mm. thinks that the university is about ideas, please let me disabuse you of that notion. That's just a thing we, the, the, the administration allows the little people to play their little games, but it's all about money. And when you become a, even, a, even the lowest level administrator of department head, you find mm. that out. And so anyway, I didn't find that, I mean, I didn't find that too shocking because of the way I am, but it also made me comfortable dealing with the money side of things. So then when I left, uh, it was really easy. It was really good training for the professor is in mm. because I just had a, I just understood that this is, if you are not uh, making financial sense, you will not be kept around and that uh, and that PhD students need to understand that assistant professors need to understand full professors need to understand that but with less urgency but then also job seekers basically you just have to understand the budgets yeah well you've read my mind uh Karen because that was my first question is actually I've been curious how did you know that you really did want to create this entrepreneurial type of career academic coaching like how did you know that was your passion and something you needed to manifest? Well, it's funny because um, Cal played a central role in that. Uh, but basically I had been uh, increasingly depressed, crying in the mailroom, wow. you know, uh, as, a, as a tenured professor and uh, really, really a bad fit with University of Illinois. And so for various reasons that I describe in my book, and, and they were, I mean, we were desperately miserable there, but it was also a personal situation with a custody arrangement and a very scary, scary thing where my children were very young and needed to get them out of a bad situation. And so I made the really wrenching choice to just quit rather than take a five-year term and look for another tenured position. I probably would have found one eventually, but I didn't have that kind of time with my kids. So, um, so I made this wrenching decision to quit. Kel had, in the meantime, found an excellent job back in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So we moved back to Oregon. And, um, and I was, in the meantime, you, some of you may not know that, um, that this is my second business. My first business was selling jewelry, oh, wow. handmade jewelry out of Japanese washi paper, which I still love. And, um, and so I was running this business. And, and I, so I had learned some basic things about marketing, mm -hmm. blogging. Uh, setting value, <clears throat> dealing with clients, customers at the time, and but it wasn't making enough money. And so I, we were standing in the kitchen one day, and I was like, and all I was doing was either, well, if I wasn't crying on the sofa in a fetal position because I had left the academy and I didn't know who I was or what I could ever do with a value in my life. So that was mostly what I was doing. But when I was not crying in a fetal position on the sofa, I was marching around the house saying, I need to, I, I have to make more money. I have to make more money. I have to make more money. And when at, at one point you were like, you were like, I said, Karen, Karen. Karen. she makes fun of the way I say her name. 
That's one of my, my, my West Coast accent. Um, <laughs> Karen, uh, since today I've met you, your single motivating force has been rage. What are you pissed about? Just figure out what you're pissed about and do that. And she said, what am I pissed about? What am I pissed about? What well, pissed like, about? So it's like a, a, so opening a door and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just trying to get dinner made. So right but anyway it was like pissed about is these fucking faculty fucking institutions with their fucking tenured positions training cohort after cohort after cohort of grad students like lambs to the fucking slaughter yeah they don't tell them the fucking truth (laughs) (laughs) and then you were like okay well i think we found your thing so go ahead. And, and she literally. And then sat- you were traveling a lot with the job that you had at that moment. And so I was alone in the house a lot. So I just sat down. I did not know how to make a website, but I kind of like big, I read some blog posts about how to make a WordPress site, did it badly. And, um, and then did, and then I real I read some people about how to be an entrepreneur. Um, Chris Gillibo, mm-hmm. I highly recommend. And I don't know if he's still currently writing, but he was transformative to me. And basically, um, you know, what they said, and this, I hope this is useful to others who are thinking of this transition. What they said is, um, you have to deliver some content, a little bit of content for free to establish your voice and your value. And once you've done that, and you have an audience that has bought into your value, they will pay money to keep reading you or to keep or to work with you. Mm. So I took that seriously. So I blogged five days a week for a number of months. And I, of course, had an endless amount of things to say. And then, um, and then I hung out a shingle and said, you can work with me. And I had a client within about five days. Wow. And then quickly I had more. And I got the Chronicle of Higher Ed let me put a column in. Um, I had had a relationship with them prior anyway. And it was like, it was called um, Memo to Professors, Re Your Grad Students. Um, and it was basically like, I'm training your grad students for money. Why am I doing it? Because you're not doing your job. That was the opening line. And after that, the floodgates opened and I had hundreds of clients, more than I could handle. So that was a start. Yeah, well, your podcast, when I discovered that you and Kel had the podcast, that was actually right before Adam and I created the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I wanna let you both know, since you're here, you were the inspiration for me of, Mm. like grad students need to weigh in too, because that really Mm. wasn't existing. And I still don't see a lot of that kind of content out there. But I am curious, do you think that you could do the professor is in and still be the chair of your department? Like, no, could- absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I, and I had, to, I had to divorce myself from academic status. And I had done it by that time. I had, I, well, not perfectly. No, I was still super excited. Back in the beginning, when I got my first client from Harvard, I was really chuffed. And when I got my first, and then I started getting speaking invites. And when I got my first invite from Brown or some, one of the Ivies, I was like, hmm. and now of course, like that's done. But mm-hmm. certainly I was still bought into academic status at that point. But I think it's worth also mentioning, yeah. I'm not sure how, um, how much you're aware that Kel now does an entire 50% of the business on on a very different side <laughs> than the Karen side of here's everything you're doing wrong and here's why everything you're thinking is wrong. 
and you know fix it right away or doom will befall you like that's the karen voice but you you actually listened to me for all these years and then you were like oh my god so now so now can we hear your impression of hell's voice that's (laughs) that's the logical next step karen karen maybe be a little nicer (laughs) karen these these folks are really tender can we maybe just be a little bit less like you're fucking everything up instead of maybe we can make it what it is which is systemic training instead of individual failure Mm. so and i do want to just toss in here because i think it's i agree with you 100 that we need to have graduate student voices that we will forever inhabit both um, our position former positions in the academy and we spend a lot of time talking to current people in the academy to try to keep current, but we're not. And we're also boomers. So we, we have a, we have a mm-hmm. inherent, you know. My name is literally Karen. <laughs> so, so, but I do <laughs> want to toss up in terms of grad school, um, grad school students that uh, Alante Whitmore is blackened in grad school, which is a, another podcast mm-hmm. for, from graduate students is fantastic. Um, and it's another great place. Spectacular. Okay. Really, really great place for graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, so what happened is, so Karen was doing the professors in, I was working for University of Oregon. Um, I was uh, sort of at the end of my rope with university stuff, had some health issues, decided to, to stop working at the university. And I started, I took over for Karen all of the, um, preparation for job for job interviews the face-to-face stuff which I still do so I do all of the job talk prep and the interview prep and the campus visit prep so I'm the person who actually likes to talk to people in person Karen likes, by Zoom, of course. Yes, Karen likes Zoom. to talk to people yeah I like to have a little bit yeah. so, <laughs> typing wait, out wait, sorry <laughs> sorry step backwards um what was your role at the University of Oregon um, when I was first at the University of Oregon, I was a faculty member, a visiting professor. Then I went and became a, a tenure track faculty at Illinois. Then when we came back to Oregon, I was the director of communications for the um, for the school that I worked for before because my background school is in journalism, school of journalism and communication at UCO. Um, and I came in doing that as a temporary gig as a favor to the dean because he had lost his comm director. And then I stayed for a while and then said, "Oh, I remember you all." So the, the other, the, the, and I worked with marvelous people. That is not about the people. That's about the institutional problems of, of universities. But I'm so grateful for it, that whole period of time because of that, both as a, as, because I did the classic thing of bec- taking on a class and taking on another class and then making myself indispensable in all these places. Mm-hmm. So they would, they sort of built this position for me when I was there the first time. Part of it was working on like the strategic plan with the Dean and, and working on, you know, so I had all this insider knowledge while being completely disrespected by faculty. So I got to have that, mm-hmm. that like, I know how your job searches work. I know what an asshole you are I carry the most FTE in this department, but you think you're the most important white man in the world. Mm-hmm. So that great me gave me a lot. I, I find it incredibly valuable in the work that I do. So that's what, why I took over the interventions because my background is in communication. And my background specifically after leaving journal, journalism was in crisis communication. 
So wow. learning how to say things in a way that <laughs> no, um, an academic job interview is not crisis <laughs> communication. I don't know what is. How to deliver your point without letting someone take it off the rails. Under duress. Right. Um, but anyhow, so but to get to the point though, you learned what what the people what our clients were really struggling with, right? I and that's that how you learned that they couldn't get their writing done, right? And that right. they were bereft. And so we had started, we had done all this stuff to help people get their jobs, but we had not figured out how to help people keep their jobs. And we had mm -hmm. figured out how to, you know, tell graduate students how to write their cover letters, but not, but how not to finish, finish their, their dissertations. dissertations. So and that's where you, that's you where, that was your insight. And so Kel created um, the Unstuck Art of Productivity program. And some of it is individual coach, was at the time individual, some of it was group, group coaching, some of it was doing this program. And um, it just... I mean, it's been running like six years now, five or six years. And she's had people go, get their just get their doctorates. They've gotten jobs. A bunch of her clients have gotten tenure. Their, their books, books have been submitted, have been published. She's mentioned in the acknowledgments. And it's just it's really amazing. And I love it. And I love it in particular because it's the uh, it's the what do I want to say. I'm sort of the voice of discipline, di the discipline, you know, like the Foucauldian discipline. <laughs> we shall discipline you. You're the, you're the panopticon. The you're panopticon. The I'm the panopticon. I am. Oh my God! I never thought of that. And and you are like this voice of of like care, compassion. Let's remember we're whole people. Well, right. that's never been more important than when the pandemic hit. Yeah. So little by little, bit by bit, I have completely come around to Kel's side, which is I don't want to be the panopticon anymore. I don't want to have any <laughs> part of this disciplinary apparatus, even indirectly. It's like you know, quit. Yeah. <laughs> quit no, I'm, I'm as soon as you it. can quit leave and do something else so it's getting a little weird for me to be me right now but anyway go ahead <laughs> well so yeah. I actually while I've been listening to this um Andrew knows that I've been um I've been I've been getting requests from from people uh we, like we put out a call for creative writing which on the surface isn't that because a lot of people just send their creative writing and they say, here it is, publish it. But we've also been getting requests that say, I want to write something and I don't know what, which is, which is my bailiwick because I'm the, because um, I've, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one and small group yeah. writing. He's our editor in chief um, basically. And I do the creative vision, executive director side of podcasting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so, but, um, but, but a lot, a lot of it really is like people, um, it's, it's exactly the question that you asked Karen all those years ago, right? What are you, what are you, what do you get exercised about? What, right. what, what is your preoccupying thought that, that you need to, to get out there somehow? But also like a lot of it is just, is just talking, talking things over with people. People don't know that they're already writers. Mm -hmm. right. Right. And people, and the academy trains you part of the, part of the, um, the disciplining of the academy is to train you to believe that writing is a solitary endeavor. Mm -hmm. That you are supposed to be able to lock yourself in a room, come up with the ideas and then present them in a way. And it constantly obfuscates both how much time you spent engaged, whether personally or by reading or whatever in people's thoughts and words mm -hmm. that, that are a conversation, but also how the vast majority of people 
move their work forward by being social about it, that they talk about it, that they share it, that they present it. But the people who believe the myth of solitude then get locked in not getting work forward because they don't want to hand it over. They mm -hmm. don't want to they don't want to they don't want to say here let me look at this i'm just taking a minute um <laughs> so, um it's also it's also um the white patriarchy right mm -hmm. so this is the the privilege of this solitary and also the pressure not just the privilege it is a privilege but it's also the um what's the, the oppressiveness of this of individualism right that 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 mm -hmm. that and every that is the model and precludes and sort of distances all these other modes of creativity. Well, and it's writing. the classic, you're right. It's the classic individualism of you're supposed to do this all your own. And when the vast majority of the people are living in some kind of relationship that they're trying to maintain, mm -hmm. relationship system that they're trying to maintain with a system that's telling you, no, abandon all that and mm -hmm. focus here. It's, mm -hmm. Which is why our first podcast is the Academy is a cult. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it's that there's so many cult-like qualities that we're gonna scoop you away and then tell you that your value depends on our opinion of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And trains you to external validation nonstop. And it's also, I mean, we're getting a little away um, from the question, but- Wow, uh, that's unusual. Yeah, but have you listened to our podcast? <laughs> but, um, uh, but it's also the reason that so many, for example, people of color, women of color in particular, don't get tenure, mm. they may get hired because there's this surface desire to quote unquote diversify. But then because so much of uh, their work might be much more communal and, and it's forced to be communal because they're forced to be mentors to, to traumatize students and, and they're choose forced to, to be. be. And well, they're also, but it, they choose to be, but they're also in, in many ways forced right. to be. I didn't be mean because... that choose to be like making them responsible for the, for the that's not what I meant. Well, what because I meant they're was the like, only there's a, there's, color, but so. there's also that I mean I think that there's this struggle because you have if you are part of a group of people who has been pushed to the margins mm -hmm. um, that that there and you come from a sense of community and 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 gr group and mm -hmm. whatever you also have this ethical question right. so I was talking to somebody the other day well can I just finish my thought <laughs> Did you finish it? I did not. It seems like it was done. Well, I just love I this dynamic. This is wonderful. I didn't, finish, I didn't finish the sentence. Okay, yes. sentence. The sentence was... everybody knew how it would end. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, dog. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, they don't get tenure because they're what they do is not solitary enough. It's not. Um, it's not on the same model. Because I mean, I've only mentioned a couple, but there are all these ways that that, that BIPOC scholars are 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 communitized, either either by choice or by force, and then and then they and then they come up, and it's like the dean says, "Well, your record is not you don't have enough sole authored peer reviewed articles," and it's like, mm -hmm. "Yeah, but look at all this other stuff I did, but it's not valued." So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I'm okay. so glad too that Karen, you really made me think about the way when you talk about white patriarchy, but also this idea of mind and body that the scholar is supposed to be all in the mind. And like Hell's saying, the solitary myth that myth-making is really colonialism to rearing its head of, you know, you have to have certain resources. And again, very white privileged, mostly men can obtain it. And, you know, I do belong to the white male category but I've also been more open about my queerness and 
doing more of that memoir style in my writing. And Adam has heard a lot about that throughout yeah, our was, journey. Yeah, I was going to bring this point up if you weren't, that like people, people have told Andrew, you need to basically write more straight. And mm-hmm. he's like, you need to go fuck yourself. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't say yeah, that well, because he's a, I would he's never a say that because I don't really curse, but Adam can, I'll give him. Sorry. How do you talk? I don't I know. know. Right? I know. And I'm from what? Jersey too, which is very. Oh my He's God. from the suburbs <laughs> of Philly. Where no, are no. the. I know. I'm from words. the Philly area. It doesn't make I don't sense. Even, I, for, I, I, I have, I have a couple of years ago, you know, I grew up in a household with like swearing is just a lack of, of a, an ability to effectively, you know, communicate you need to work on your vocabulary oh yeah that's my lazy blah 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 right yeah that's my years right years and then i started yeah right 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 so then i started (laughs) filling in stuff and now it's just and i every once in a while we'll be talking on the podcast or something i think oh my god i gotta rein it in and then it lasts for i don't know 34 seconds and then i'm back to something else but anyway i don't know how you talk the um (laughs) But the thing that 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 I th- I think you bring up a really good point, Andrew. That that you're going to get people who are trying to get you to get over here and do it the way that it, we're comfortable with, right? It's the I, I worry about the way that you're doing it and that people will be uncomfortable instead of. And to me, it reminds me of um, I saw this thing today, and this is going to seem tangential, but welcome to me. Um, of this, if the, of somebody saying, you know, so you're saying I should let my daughter, you know, shake her ass on TikTok for a bunch of middle-aged men. And this <laughs> linguist was saying, here's the thing, the sentence should be, so you, I'm going to let my buddies watch a 14, you know, I should be objecting to watching my buddies um, watch a 14-year-old girl. But instead we put the onus on mm-hmm. this, on their sexualizing of a 14-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, that what, you know, this whole thing of like, these people are going to have a problem or it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be whatever. If you live your, in your life, we need to shift the onus to the people who are responsible, which is you need to get over your homophobia or your racism or your whatever the fuck, mm-hmm. instead of like old white yeah. man in the chair, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. well, this, mm-hmm. we to do she's just own. entertaining them. Well, she even wants in her to be writing, it's like, she's that. doing, she's not, it's like, right. no, you are refusing to actually move forward in any. Yeah. Oh, that's when I was it. yelling at the television. Yeah. It was that Moby Dick lesson when I was so excited because that's the kind of pedagogy <laughs> we're being taught is mm-hmm. discussion-based. And then I see this stodgy white male professor in the background just <laughs> glaring at the only black woman in the department and that I could right. really relate to because yeah. you know we're very honest here at Stony Brook every year from 2014 to current I've heard we need to find a Native American or black female scholar and it's always <laughs> been framed that way and we've had searches I've seen a few searches with black women I've went to their job talks and then they never get the job and then we actually do have a black female in the department who teaches um, also with Africana studies and she studies um, black female literature and she's never part of the community. And I've mm. asked faculty about that and they said, well, she's in another department. Oh, right. And I'm like, but and, wait. And- Without the realization that someone is likely in her, you know, that, that, that these 
people coming from marginalized positions are likely to have split loyalties. And so you have to change what you do to make sure that they're included. Or that there's not a, a fucking exhaustion quality of being the- The only, the, the only. only the and the first. Right. First, first, and the first and the only, the first and the only, the first and the only. Someone like, in the Olympics was saying like the first, or I, it, it emerged in the Olympics. I can't remember if it was Olympics context, but it was basically like anytime you hear that someone was the first, what you're hearing is a history of violence. Right, of people excluded of, up to that point. Up to that point. Instead of like, this is a great accomplishment. Right. It's like, it is. And it's built on all these disappointments. So, right, yeah. exactly. Well, it's like why I'm so excited to look more into just my own passion, which is Kel's Unstuck, your program that you do, because the reason that we're even speaking with you right now is because I knew that this kind of community of public humanities that I've been trained in, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room has become a creative safe haven of academics and creative nice. writers. And mm -hmm. like, why I was so stuck with my dissertation was I was being told you have to write this by yourself. This has to be done isolated. And when I really found my groove was when I connected my queerness to how I got to Whitman and Oscar Wilde and all of this queer poetics in the first place. So when I was being gaslit um, and I worked through therapy with that um, a few months ago was, oh, wait, I'm not the one who's the problem if I'm coming out about how I got to Song of Myself by Whitman, what the problem is, is why are these conversations not happening in the department? And why is right. this, um, why am I supposed to only remain objective? Like I kept hearing this, the yeah. scholar's objective. And right. I'm and thinking, well, no, come on though. Nobody in an English department is using the word objective with a straight face at this point in 2021, are they? Well, I mean, it we they haven't are? really had the whole department even in one Zoom together. So I think that speaks um, mm. to a lot of nervousness in our department to even hear the grad mm. students. We've had a lot of concerns mm. to talk in town halls with faculty and we've never gotten our town hall. Well, so but, but that's, but it's, that's it's very interesting. That, is that you won't always, like sometimes a word goes away, right? Like the N word went away, but the, the things that it represented didn't go, didn't right. go away, yes. right? The discrimination didn't go away. So the so word objective, objective yeah. the word objective, you're gonna see John Locke use it to criticize like, you know, one of his contemporaries, but you're not necessarily gonna see, see it now, but you're still gonna see mm -hmm. the same like late 17th century writing principles right. that are represented by the right. word. Right. And you know what? You're absolutely right, because they're going to say, well, her scholarship uh, only speaks to a or is only about a small group of people mm -hmm. or it only sm speaks to a small audience. It's not universal enough or it's I, they probably wouldn't use the word universal either. <clears throat> but that's what they constantly do when they're not giving um, women of color jobs. Yeah. So. So one of the, one of the things that I, by the way, find so refreshing about listening to your podcast and reading your articles and stuff like that is that is precisely this this sort of moment that you just you you go to the part that that other people don't want to say, and then you say it, mm -hmm. and and it's like wow you can just you can just say it. I didn't realize you could do that. <laughs> right. I mean, I obviously I did because Andrew and I have been doing this for a year, um, right. and we've been talking about it for longer than that. But like. But 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 I even even with all of that, I still feel that sense of refreshment. Like when you open a bottle of soda and all the fizz comes up, right. and it's like wow, 
right and nervousness right there's like this wall that you build up to so hold on to that question we will get back to it i just want to thank you all for listening to this podcast episode and for supporting the ivory tower boiler room we are all volunteers here and the only way that we can rely on expanding this public humanities vision of having a literary and artistic community is with all of you, our listeners. So thank you all. If you can, please share our podcasts, like it, um, subscribe on the platform you're listening to. That really does help us leave a review for us. We also really appreciate if you can to donate to us, you can donate at ivorytowerboilerroom.com and you'll see our donate button there. You can be a one-time or monthly subscriber. And there's a lot of exciting news and coming out in the fall that we are currently working on a Patreon. So more on that to come, but thank you all. And now back to that question that I just posed. That happens to me sometimes, even when I talked about what happened with Whitman is there's this voice in my head that says, uh-oh, you're going against the group. You're saying what actually is happening and what needs to be remedied, but we have to, if we don't speak out about it. Absolutely. Well, and there uh, is a there, change. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Well, late in life, um, for a variety of reasons, it has, uh, I have become aware that I am probably on the autism spectrum and it's a self-diagnosis. And as I read more about autism, I have learned that one of the primary qualities of autism is an, in, is an inability, to, not so much an in, inability to lie, but a determination to tell the truth and, and to say things that are socially inappropriate. And, um, and when I, and as I've, and I'm not articulating it very well, but um, the more I read, I was like, oh, that's the professor is in. It's like, I can't stand these lies. I can't stand these lies. Also a, a real discomfort with unfairness. And it's like, it's just like that, you, those grad students being led like lambs to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. It is unfair. You are not telling the truth. I can't tolerate it. And it wasn't just at that moment. I mean, ever since I was a grad student, I had been losing my mind. The, the professors in started when I was still, um, I had gotten my job offer at Oregon, but I had not yet finished. I had not yet moved away from Hawaii. And um and I led a job market workshop for my peers, grad student peers in the department. And I told the faculty they weren't allowed to come. And, um, and that was the origin of it. So I had been doing, and then every year as an assistant professor, a tenured professor, I was doing job market stuff. And I was just like, I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth. And I just realized that that's why in some ways you asked, could I do it as department head? Categorically not, as a faculty, categorically not. But a neurotypical person, probably not. Probably mm. not, because I just don't really like have a, a care as much about yeah. whether I'm making someone uncomfortable or not. We yeah. have a running um, thing where I tell Karen that she doesn't have a governor. Like she just doesn't sometimes read the social cues and she'll just come out with these things. And thankfully I have that, that, that training in crisis communication to go, I think what we're trying to say here is, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe, maybe that was not the best Or right. standing in another room desperately gesturing. <laughs> My arm's going, ah! So um, in the early... <laughs> In the early days when yeah. she would get interviewed by various people and I would hear her and I would just be in the other room like, holy fuck. 
And we have, we, I mean, we have stepped in it. We have done things wrong. We have failed to, to recognize, you know, the experiences of different people. We mm -hmm. have one of the things that I, um, I am proud of us about is that I think that we, um, and Karen does a much better job at this than I do. We are, we are really open to feedback and we're constantly trying to figure out what the current state of graduate students are. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by Karen who's better at it is she's better at dismissing the haters. So when the people start mm -hmm. on us, I'm much more likely to go, oh, no. oh, did you see that person? They said all these awful things. And she's like, I don't give a fuck. Anyway, moving along. And I'm like, but, 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 ah. so, <laughs> So we're a, we're, really, we're a really good balance <laughs> yeah. in that of being able to say, hey, we need to a little kinder, a little gentler, a little easier. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't need to listen to that shit. People mm -hmm. are all, the haters are going to hate, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to be to a group of people. We're going to be grifters till the day is Oh, long. then there's that. And I wish that they yeah. would look up the definition of the word, but anyway. Yes. So yeah, that really, I have to say just on your behalf, when I've seen like fellow academics, when I talk about the professors and, and they've claimed, they try to use that as marking you, I say, actually, Karen and Kel are so receptive to feedback and to hearing from your voice that you should actually just reach out to them to actually know what they're doing and what yeah. they're responding to. But again, I feel sad for someone who thinks that because it really means they're really part of this cult. Oh, I, I was just, gonna say that oh. yeah it's sad right. it's sad you know and I I, I, don't, I don't like to use that word because I think it feels it it feels a little bit which one? condescending sad. sad like oh you're sad mm. it feels a little condescending to me I mean to be condescending sorry I'm <laughs> sorry not sorry so so <laughs> for me it feels a little bit like I I use that opportunity to, I want to use that opportunity to say, okay, I see you stuck in a place. Where am I stuck in my perception of you mm. that we might be able to have a conversation? Cause I'm, I'm stick, I'm starting to stick in my perception of you mm -hmm. the way you're sticking in your perception of me and what I do. So that's and, very Buddhist. Yes. Which you are very, I mean, I read a thing. lot of that you're, stuff. You're on that not, not yeah. Buddhist. Well, even on this, this zoom, I can tell Kel, there's this aura of calmness that I'm <laughs> like, I feel it, it kind of, I don't want to like just do a fully uh, Lacanian mirroring of what's going on here, but like Adam and Kel have a very similar type <laughs> of way of being. Yeah. And I can really relate to Karen, your energy. Yeah. Um, even even visually, um, Kel, the hair is going down and Karen, the hair is going up. So it's, <laughs> it's, um, yes. Yes, there needs to be. It's symbolic. If, if a novelist were to, were to describe you that way, yes. you would read that and you would say, oh, what a hack. Come on, really? That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. So the thing that I think is interesting about what we do and we've been talking about this just recently and it and it really really complicates what it really it's so it's so hard to wrestle with is that and i had i was i was working with um a black scholar on prepping a job talk and she said so basically she said don't take this wrong but you are the perfect when you said that you perfectly artic articulated white scholars speak for mm -hmm. how this should be said. And mm -hmm. I said, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely yeah. right. 
And so then I went back to Karen and I said, basically what we're doing and we need to own mm -hmm. is we are teaching people how to put things in the language that the people in power will understand and mm -hmm. respond to. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And there is a massive danger in that. Mm -hmm. And I think about that all the time lately of where, where am I capitulating, but where am I making it possible? Like, where am I assisting in, in, in intervention by getting people inside the door, mm. right? So, you know, okay, I work with the, the, this, you know, this number of black scholars over a year and this very high percentage of them get jobs and then what? So I think that we, and when Karen was saying it's really challenging, increasingly challenging to be her, it's increasingly challenging to figure out, I mean, I just think we want to get further and further and further to, to transparency of like, it started off of, we want to teach you how to do a job letter so people will listen to you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. instead be much more transparent and say, this is white male speak for how you get this mm -hmm. message across. So, you know, I do, I, I just want to say that I've been since very early, not right away, but within a couple of years, I started to say, look, I want to be really transparent. I'm telling you how to talk like a white guy, a straight white guy. And, um, and so, and here's why I'm telling you, here's my rationale for telling you. And what I want you to take from this is not that you have to do it, but that you can choose to do it. And if you do choose to do it, it will carry risks. And if you don't choose to do it, it will carry risks. And what I, what I don't want is for you to be ignorant of the risks of either one of those choices. And that, and the trouble with the cult-like quality of the academy is that nobody understands the risks. They, they, don't, they don't understand the expectation that you have to talk like the straight white guy and they don't understand the risks of either doing it or not doing it. And so basically it's like, please don't go into this ignorant of what you're confronting. Understand the truth and then make your choices from an informed position. And, and that's really um, right. what I've tried to do. I haven't always succeeded though. And actually I just wanna say, <clears throat> The book came out in 2015 and I'm at work on a second edition oh, because um, I really, really feel that I fell down in so many ways in not foregrounding the whiteness of my voice hmm. and my positionality. And so I, so I, when I submitted the uh, proposal for the second edition, it was mainly, mainly about that and then also about um, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty big things racism and covid um yeah. the th and a few other handful of other things yeah, so, so that, more about leaving the academy yeah and that was a that question was adam had so you just answered what's... how would you return to the professor's in in 2021 so thank you karen racism and i think that uh, and i brought that up about our, our our wrestling with how to accomplish this in the most transparency because i think one of the very very legitimate critiques of of the work and and it, you know you have to understand where you start and where you get to so if you're in your kitchen in a state of rage and if you look at the early blog posts from karen they just vibrate with fury and you can see that that's, that's dissipated over time, but mm. you're starting in this thing. You don't know you're gonna become the professor is it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You don't know that you're gonna become a book and all these people and all this stuff. And so some of the big sweeping statements mm -hmm. of the early things- Totally invalid. 
totally invalid or erasing whole groups mm -hmm. of people and uh, people's experience. And so that's the thing that, that I think coming back to this, it's like, okay, so a bunch of the critique has been, you know, you're just capitulating, you're just doing this, the what not to wear blog post gets a whole lot of pushback about you're just falling into these traps of expectation and blah, blah, blah. And it, that post right now, I think written would have been much more like, look, this is, this is much less, let's much yeah, less yeah. like adamant about yeah. this is the way. Which I would have, have come around to wear whatever the fuck you want, but just understand uh, the consequences. But understand the consequences. Right. Mm -hmm. And also, and wow, tattoos have really changed mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah. 10 years. It's like, yeah, yeah don't worry have the tattoos yeah. like in 10 years ago i was like mm, i'm not sure but that's you know yeah and if, if i may i know um that what has really helped too is learning from both of you um about just the privilege of allyship in a way of being a white man um especially even though i'm gay there's certain risks that i can take um to speak out about whether it's gaslighting in the university or whether it's even my sexual abuse journey, I felt that there was enough support. And I have like faculty then started to come to me and say that they were abused. And mm -hmm. I started to realize you become a lightning rod in the positives and the negatives. And I'm sure I know both of you have experienced that with the professors in. Um, and, but the positives have really outweighed whatever gaslighting technique is tried at me, but I realized that if I was, say, a gay black man in the department who felt that gaslighting, would I have been so ready to share it? But I think to expect the onerous to be on the BIPOC faculty or the BIPOC graduate students or undergrads, that they're the ones who are going to teach the white community at the university about how to solve racism. Like right. that to yeah. me has been the current challenge right now is realizing, oh, wait, if you are an active ally, the work is not done. Like mm -hmm. I've yeah. heard a lot right now that from some faculty that Black Lives Matter has just reshaped the field and we're now in a new era of teaching. Mm -hmm. I wish. Is yeah, that in I, a bad way? Is that, is, is that supposed to be? I, I absolutely no, Well, I, I mean, I mean it in a way of that they think the work is done. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, I was thinking more Whoa. like, oh, yeah. Holy uh, shit. I, I, th I thought about this that one summer. That one summer, I thought about it a lot. So I, now I'm ready. I yeah. made exactly. some Facebook posts about it. So I'm pretty sure I'm anti-racist now. Well, it's it's I'm, like that old joke about how Martin Luther King solved racism. Right. And then mm -hmm. the last remaining racist person shot him, but then went to jail, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and he talks a lot about the white moderate and... Mm -hmm. Like that, yeah, I think, exactly. is more what I'm signaling is mm -hmm. be wary of the white liberal professor who. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so my new my new position is, is, is if you are if you are a white person committed to anti-racism and you don't identify a, a racist thought or idea during your day, you're not working hard enough mm. because there is not a day that goes by if mm -hmm. I am attending to my thoughts it's back to the Buddhism thing, that if mm. I am attending to my thoughts, there is not a day that I do not have a racist thought. 
It's just not possible, not possible to be 60 years old, having come up in a in this culture, mm-hmm. and not where go, wow, mm-hmm. wow, th- I just saw this person go by me, and I had this response. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to name a bunch of shit because I don't need to like traumatize people of color with my weird ass mm-hmm. thoughts. But but I saw this person and had this response. I interacted with this person and had this Made response. These assumptions. And if I'm not like going, whoa, there it is. Mm-hmm. Whoa, there every single fucking day, mm-hmm. you're not working hard enough. And it isn't, I just want to interject. It isn't a function of being 60, a 60 year old white person. Cause that might sound like, oh, you boomers. Oh, you're, yeah, you're, uh, it's only the 25, so the 25 year olds are off the yeah, hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah like the, the, the millennials are off the hook. I mean, no, if you're a white person raised in a white supremacist culture, you are racist mm-hmm. and that's the structural racism. And you don't just, your good intentions do not absolve you of that. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and I think I've just been more attuned entering back into teaching in person that mm-hmm. I'm even more committed to not having a lecture style because yeah. I realized that that lecture style, guess what? That's white privileged. It right. is oh, also colonial. And colonial. colonial. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that that's when those sweeping generalizations are made that... Um, you know, privileged white Americans, privilege that lecturer's um, positionality. And again, though, I know we could go on and on, but it is important to note that being a white male in front of the class is very different than being a woman who's white or a, especially a woman of color. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Our queerness does not, our queerness does not do much of anything. Doesn't do much of anything. Mm-hmm. And neither does Jewishness, just not that it's just to, just to throw that in. Because the right. uh, being Jewish, I observe my Jewish colleagues trying to say, well, I'm a Jew, so I'm not racist, or I can't be racist. <laughs> or, I'm also a victim. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I've, white Jews. Yeah, white Jews. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the word. Adam keeps trying to. Adam no, I know. Adam wants to say I know, something. I know we're no, nearing no, no, the end no, no, of time, no. but we want to bring up something. Adam, go ahead. No, it's um, you. You were you were already you were already moving towards it. Um, oh, I was segueing to it. Yeah, that. Um, you got it. When you mentioned the word victim, Karen, like that is such a heavy weighted word. Just as an abuse survivor, but someone who I don't know if you know, but I'm really close to Halana Darwin, and we had her on our podcast. She mentioned how the professor is in is one of the only organizations that actually shared what she was going through um, under the um, abuse of Michael Kimmel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we released the episode with her and Mm -hmm. the university still, not to my surprise, I mean, Adam and I had had a lot of these conversations. We um, were hoping we had moments where we wanted to get dialogue with the administration about what to do with Me Too PhD survivors on campus, but there's no conversation. Um, it's more like it would have been nice. Yeah, it would have been nice to see change was happening, of, but- We didn't have a whole lot of expectation. Yeah. That, Which is where I think the happen. chair nails it. The university is, is its motivation is risk avoidance. And that yes. litigation avoidance. It's, yes. if we, or what's the, it's not, it's a liability. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Liability. It's liability yeah. avoidance. Mm-hmm. That's what the interest is. And are, are you guys aware of the uh, sexual harassment database that I did? The CrowdStore yes. survey? 
Oh yes, yeah, and I, I'm actually sharing it, and... it with our whole um, audience when this comes okay, out. Good. So thank you good, for doing good, that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ooh. um, it's still open to new, or is it? I think you closed it because closed it was it... risk of hack. Or something. Yeah, Somebody had I was, it up. I was yeah. getting um, but that's also because I don't really understand how Excel works. But um, <laughs> uh, in any case, yeah, but uh, at any case, it uh, yeah, that's it's a it's very damning, and I got interviewed a lot by like the Washington Post and different. I forget who else about it. And a few organizations got in touch, but they wanted names. And I'm like, it's not about names. But, uh, other, uh, names are very important. And like Julia LaBarkin and others are naming names and that's great. <clears throat> but I wanted to show scale mm -hmm. and, and uh, culture and culture and variability of, of all the ways large and small that it can occur. And I, I don't know that I've seen much change since we did it. Yeah, well, and something that I've listened to, everyone should listen to Karen talk about Me Too PhD, or you just talk about how this has intersected, of course, with the cult of academia and silencing mm -hmm. victims, silencing even those who come forward as survivors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really where I know Halana and I talk about that Halana, this actually happened to her on campus. Uh, my abuser was off campus, not related, but I still didn't hear a lot from the university, except from PR um, about reaching yeah. out to Adam and I about who do we have on? Remember Adam, we got a lot of messaging about who was gonna come on, when yeah. was it going to be released? And it's exactly that line that Karen right. and Kel, you've talked about that risk avoidance. They just wanted to know how much, what shit, there I'll curse, how much shit was going to hit the fan. Right, right, because <laughs> and and I just congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. If you, get the, if you get the PR, if you get the PR, oh, no, I meant the four-letter word. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Right. That, that was beautiful. But <laughs> I just, I, it was just so familiar <laughs> to me. I didn't even register. So, the, but I think that I just want to, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind people what you're engaging with. This in loco parenti, this idea that this institution is there to take care of you is part of the cult gaslighting. It is a corporation and no more than you would expect United Airline or Walmart. Walmart to come in and say to their workers, yeah, I know this person of importance abused you. So we're gonna dismantle our system of patriarchy and racism for you. Or, or fire that person. Or fire our, that person. Our, you know, our chief, right. whatever. Officer. When we're still adhering to the great white man model mm -hmm. that we're gonna keep trying to take, keep our power intact. And our power is not intact by dismantling these systems. It's shutting you up. Mm -hmm. So expecting the university to care for you is the first false belief. It, it does amazing. not care for your soul, period. Yep. And for yeah. some reason, grad students are more likely and, uh, and junior faculty are more likely to have bought into that mm -hmm. well, so, than so anyone now, else, so undergrads now, so now or I have senior a question, faculty. Which okay. is like, how, how do you create enough of a fuss to, to flip the equation, right? Because we, we've established, and, and like you said, one of the things that, that this show the chair got right is the, um, the administration protects itself for first and foremost, which means protecting its most powerful faculty, except when its most powerful faculty proved too burdensome, right? One of the first things that they did in the show is they were talking about 
um, pushing out their most expensive faculty. One of the big plot arcs is they're talking about pushing out this faculty member who has a racism scandal around him because it's too much weight for them to carry, blah, blah, blah. So they will get rid of yep. powerful faculty if the powerful faculty um, are going to cause them lawsuits that are not worth yep. what they bring in in grants and prestige and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, 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 so I would argue, to, wait, do you have a question? I think I got the question. Like, well, yes, how, do we shift, how do we shift the, how do we turn the exactly. tide? I would argue, I would argue as a, as a, as a communication specialist that you understand what their pain points are. So what we see in the chair is that students, students organized and organized. press their pain points. Now, what I see students do is exactly what they did. We're gonna protest out in front. Administration will wait you out. Right. They will wait you out until you lose interest. Or they graduate. Or they graduate, which is they- It's they, a transient population. Your population. Right. If you begin to use the same strategies of PR, of newspapers, of contacting donors, of all the things that that we watch happen. The right wing does very well. The right wing does very well. But but if you start saying, okay, as a student organization, we know, or as a as a survivor, and this is again puts the onus on people who are already struggling. But the more we build systems of um, of in, act, in engaging with them, the way they engage, and this is where it sort of gets back to us saying, you know this is the way these people talk. So let me tell you what I know about what deans and presidents will react to, because I know. Mm -hmm. and, and you know what they don't react to is, um, this is just wrong and we need to do better. Yep, and it's wrong. an ethical issue. And that's, man, that is yeah, the native language that. of academics, especially in humanities. And it's like, and it's like appealing to your heartstrings. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. no. You and I would say it speak. should be that way. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. It should be. Yeah, that's the that's. But we don't have a community of care. There's no community yeah, of but, care but, in the university. That's there the is no community problem. of care under capitalism. Right. Yes, that's and the true. University is capitalism. Exactly. And if we don't accept that this is capitalism at work, and capitalism is designed to consume its 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 laborers, and extract more labor out of them for, for less cost, money. and and that means that if you just like if you were on the factory floor and you said this person is is abusing me who's gonna get fired mm. this is capitalism so speak the language of the of liability yep that's what so, works so do you guys work with for instance grad school unions to uh, on on their uh, when they have communication issues like this Ooh, yeah. never been asked to, never been asked but to. i have absolutely on an individual level i have worked on many appeals um cases for tenure denial and things like that and and you know what and I and I'll you know actually tenure I do a lot of editing of tenure statements now um, because our our audience has now moved up through their careers and it is both of those the appeal and the and tenure statements themselves first draft or you know initial ones um, is a process of editing out the emotional community of care language. Like mm. I am devoted to this organization. I've given you years of my life. Uh, nobody knows the students better than I do. And I'm like, delete, 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 delete. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> I wrote the book language. on, I wrote a book on Chaucer. <laughs> Well, still no, good. Yeah, you're you still getting up in the basement. Yeah, but who no, published I was, it? I was, oh, yeah, yeah, from the chair. Yeah, 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 ye
I any, didn't do it anyway. So, anyway, yeah. the point is, um, yeah, no, you have to. I, I do. I'm like I'm Obama's anger translator. I, 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 I am a liability speak translator, mm, and mm -hmm. just like hit, hit, hit. hit it was like, words yeah, and more pain points. Yeah. Well, it was like my advice to Adam was, Adam, guess what? They're not going to stop us releasing this with Halana. So, I will only give them a response that we need to give because we don't owe yeah, exactly. the PR team anything. Mm -hmm. I'm done. But, like, but one of the money? first things yeah. that we did when we got that letter from the Stony Brook PR teams was, is, is we started researching lawyers. Good. Just yes. in case. We didn't know how far what this was going to go. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think yeah. you're right. This is, I know we're wrapping up at the end. I could, oh, I could just talk all day, but we're going to, I know, stay in each other's orbits. And definitely mm -hmm. I'm recommending sure. everyone who listens to this and we'll put it on our website, all of your links, the programs that you have with the professors in Cal's productivity, um, mm -hmm. coach work and Karen, everything that you offer as well, following their podcast um, and excited for the new edition of your professors in book. Um, but yeah, learning how to how, learning how in a way it reminds me of Ardra Lord just about the master's tools that yeah. you have to learn what they're using to um, what they're doing to silence you and knowing, okay, well, I could take those tools and if they're not going to give us a lot of transparency, why do I have to give them transparency when we're ending the gaslighting? And I mean, it's it's powerful. It's been powerful for me to realize that, oh, I don't owe the university um, You owe them anything. your tuition. Which you did pay, or mm -hmm. fees, or whatever it is you paid. Yeah, I paid fees. fees. The fees are getting right. almost as high as the tuition. No right, kidding. Right. Yeah. It's, a way, it's the workaround, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to give you a tuition waiver, but mm -hmm. then they're going to kill you with fees. Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, I had one final point to make and I, oh, and, and I do want to say, because we've talked a lot about the services that we offer and just to remind everybody that I think there are like 1100 blog posts. Wow. There wow. are, um, there are weeks and weeks and weeks of the podcast. There's everything's you know, totally everything free. is the, all the stuff that we rant on about, you can go find out without having to hire us. And we're just about to launch a new, um, we've been really, really trying to figure out how to contend with um, the finances of the people that we're working with and, and the, the, the insecurity around with COVID precarity. and the precarity. And so we're just about to launch a new program that is going to be short videos, like how to write the first paragraph of your cover letter, or here's one of my just one thing productivity things where you can just access those for a really low amount of money. Okay. Um, so you can pick and choose what you need. Like I got my letter figured out, but, but I, I really don't know how to, to do that. I don't know the tailoring paragraph. Mm. And then you can listen to Karen for five minutes, talk about the tailoring paragraph. So we're Wonderful. constantly trying to figure out how to support you where you are. Mm. And, mm. and then when we know where you are right now is what the hell? So that's, where, that's what we're coming from is how do we address what the hell right now? So yeah. Well, thank that's you so fair. much. Yeah, a lot of us. Yeah. I know Adam is going to look for that right away. We're all we're all going no, to be absolutely posting on our social media absolutely. as well. Because a, a lot of us are in that fetal position on the couch. And it's, right. it's, it's good to it's it's good to talk to the expert on that. Who's, who's been there? <laughs> who's been there? And, 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 I mean, and, and to who's be clear, willing to admit it. That's a big. Right. That's yeah. a big. Yes. Because yes. we've all been there. 
all right. been there. But 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 somebody who's willing to admit it, that's that's that's, that's powerful beyond what we're used to. And this last that's a different kind of power. Yeah. And this last, and I always hesitate to start the count because it it's not just COVID, because it was the Trump administration and everything else that has just been our brains were not designed to endure this kind of stress. And mm -hmm. so we are, as a species, really, really, really tapped out. Our wells are down to dust for many people and very muddy for most people. And so we spend a lot of time honoring that we can't cope right now. And so we take more and more time just like, nope, I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. doing that. And I just want to encourage you all to do less. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. do less. Do less. Do less. Close yeah. your eyes. Lie on the ground. Go lay down. Go lay down. Right. Go find the TikTok video. Go, go lay down. Go find that TikTok. And go lay down. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. This has been just on that note. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks I love it. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Okay. So let's put a bookmark in this. Our Ivory Tower Boiler Room team is co-creator and executive director Andrew Rimby and co-creator and editor-in-chief Adam Katz. I'm Eric Grimay our media director. Mary DePippi is our chief contributor and Jaren Usta is our head of marketing. We'd love to have you follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Please visit our website at ivorytowerboilerroom.com. We're excited to hear your interview requests and to have you submit your creative writing to us. You can email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. We want to thank Words Matter Bookstore in Pittman, New Jersey, right near Philadelphia. And we'll close with our theme song, Lover Man, by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames.